Welcome back to Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, uh, Healing from Pornography Addiction, Dr. Kevin Skinner and Jeff Jeff Stewart. And we want to welcome you back. This is part three in our series. And, you know, we've talked about in the first part uh, why marriage and porn don't mix. Uh, Last time we talked about marital CPR. And in this part of the series, we're going to talk about yours, mine, and ours. What do we mean by that? What we're talking about is that in order for there to be a healthy, successful, long-term recovery for the couple, you're going to be dealing with three recoveries. You're going to be dealing with the individual who's struggling with the addiction, the secretive behaviors, the compulsive problematic behaviors. And then you've got the partner's recovery, which is dealing with trauma, grief, loss, and really rediscovering herself or himself in that process. And then the third recovery is going to be the relational recovery. And that recovery, in some ways, kind of has its own needs that... uh, you know, aren't necessarily tied into the individual recoveries. You know, and what's interesting about that is we're going to be at different phases or different points on this if it's a continuum at different times. In other words, you know, one person may be in recovery, maybe more advanced, more ready, done more work, and the other person may be at the beginning stage. And how does that then fit with the R recovery? And it's really finding a balance because if we're looking at this as a continuum, they're rarely at exactly the same page. Exactly. And what we'll be doing in this this particular um, episode is that we're going to be um, talking specifically about how to structure this initially and just sort of outline what it should look like. But really the emphasis for this series is is long-term, you know, for the next few episodes, is that we're going to be talking about more of the R's and how to help the couple stay connected through recovery. But for, to, for today, what we're doing now is emphasizing what does the yours, what does the mine, and what does the ours look like? How do they start to interact with each other and how to get started? And if we don't do that, there's kind of a problem because I think what happens is you've got two individuals on an island unto themselves in the recovery process. And if, if they're trying to make the marriage better, well, the individual islands are not really that close. And it's a very difficult place to merge the two together. One thing that I see a lot is, uh, I, I don't know if it's a, a traditional recovery mindset or something that's just sort of crept in, but I think in, in traditional uh, recovery uh, language and literature, they, I've heard phrases like, well, you're only in charge of sweeping your side of the street. And while I certainly agree that um, that everybody is in charge of their own behavior and taking responsibility for their own actions um, and that we can't control other people, I worry that that mindset is incomplete when it comes to couples recovery, because what it says is, is that all I can do is what I can do for myself. And it almost ignores the fact that there is a need to be bonded, connected and close, which is the R recovery. And so uh, I, I think we have to talk about it more than just you do your thing, I'll do my thing. All right. So let's begin then with the uh, the person who's struggling with pornography, who's who's it's now out in the open. Let's talk about what some of, what are the, some of the things that they need to do in this part. They're part of the process. I think the first thing, and we talked about this in our last one on marital CPR. The first thing is, um, I, I want this individual to become um, an expert on addiction recovery. Um, Dr. Milton Magnus out of, uh, out of Texas, he, he has a great analogy. He says, if you are diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, you will jump on the Internet and you will start to research and investigate and understand every single thing you can about this, not only to understand what you're dealing with, but also things you can do to make it better and understand the prognosis and what to expect and so on. And I want a guy that I'm working with or a woman I want them to be experts on this. I want them to know everything they can. And in this day and age, where we stand today, there is a wealth of information about this. Everything from understanding addiction, um, family of origin issues, shame, brain stuff. There's so much you can learn about it that I can't even read it all. You know, and one of the things that uh, as they go out and gather information, I want to emphasize the importance of getting accurate information. Because Correct. there are many uh, places out there that say that it's completely normal, that you shouldn't feel bad about it, that you shouldn't feel that there's guilt associated with it. And and I want to be cautious there because my experience and, and with all of the research that I've been doing on this, looking at the research, the men that I see saying, I am addicted to this, I have not been able to stop and I've wanted to. And I ask yeah. the question, why do you want to? 
What, what is driving the desire or the want to stop? And you know what's interesting? Very few of them say it's just to save my marriage. Many of them say it's because I don't like how it makes me feel. I don't like feeling this out of control of my life. They know something's wrong. Yeah, and and so I, and I think that's important for their wives to understand, or for their husbands, if it's the other way around, that they don't like this. It's 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 literally controlling a significant part of their mind. The, a lot of times, partners think that that the individual struggling with the addiction wants this all the time because they keep doing it, but. That's just part of the unmanageability of the addiction. And that's what we want to understand. Right. Pornography can become addictive. Correct. And it, it not for everybody. And I, I want to emphasize that it doesn't become addictive to everybody. But there are many individuals who it makes them feel out of control. And, and let, let me just give an example of that. If it were not addictive, would people look at it at work? Would they put everything at risk for it? Right. Correct. Would they put their marriage at risk because of it? And, and so then we, we've already talked a little bit about how it's desensitizing. We've already talked a little bit about how it alters the emotions and their inability to socially bond with people. If you're in this part of saying, where do I begin my own recovery? As Jeff said, get correct information about it and study and learn about it because one the more you realize what is hap- what is happening inside of your brain and what is happening to your body the more you're going to say I get what's going on inside of me I maintain a readings list on my website and the website is www.lifestarstgeorge.com that's l i f e s t a r s t g e o r g e dot com and in the resources section i have a list of books for individuals partners family members and so on of books that i feel like contain accurate and helpful information for recovery like heaven said there is so much bad information out there that is actually does more damage and as a as a professional working with recovery every day in and out all day long um I believe I have a pretty good sense, and I know you do, Kevin, of what is helpful and what's not helpful. So I put that list out there just so you could uh, not have to sift through all the garbage. And, and I think that's extremely important. So let, let's get the good information, the right information. And we're, we're grateful that you're spending this time with us. We really want to help you in this part because our experience has been that you can overcome this. And I, and I want to really emphasize that at this point because now we're at the point where the dust has kind of settled from the emergency, going to the emergency room and getting the CPR. And now we're saying, okay, what's what's my issue? What do I need to work on? What's my spouse need to work? What are they going to be working on? And then how in the world would we put this marriage in a place where there's some stability? Exactly. So Kevin, what have you found um, just getting educated about it does for an individual struggling with addiction? I think it actually normalizes it. There's been so much guilt and so much shame associated with it. They've had this secret for so long. And many times, the more information they get, uh, in fact, I received an email just last night, and, and it was from a client. He said, I love learning what you're sharing with me. He says, do you have any more books that I can read? Because I, I always refer my clients to books. Yep. And what's interesting is I actually refer them to books that aren't necessarily dealing with pornography. Right. I refer them to books that, uh, of how things can change the brain and how you can change bad habits and how we make decisions. And uh, I mean, if you want an example of that, I love the book, The Talent Code. It's a great book on how talents are developed because I really believe not just learning about the problem, but learning about finding how to develop our talents because what pornography does is it creates inside of an individual a lack of confidence, guilt, and shame, and they begin to think more about those things, and they stop using the creative part of self that is so powerful. And I believe that, especially with the people that I've seen, and I, and I really believe this is for all people who are stuck in pornography. They're amazing people, and they just don't know it because pornography has altered their perception of themselves. That's right. And so getting educated lets them know that, one, they're not alone. They're not the only person that's dealt with this. And it gives them a framework for understanding why this even happened in the first place. And then, like you said, giving readings and assignments and, and understanding other processes that are affected by pornography, diminished by pornography, is a huge part of structuring and opening up a good, healthy, long-term recovery process. And one of the things I like to do is encourage them to think about as many other things as, as possible. Let's stop spending all of our time thinking about pornography. Let's start spending time about things that you want to incorporate and put into your life. Let's start reading good books. Let's start uh, learning about how the brain works. Let's, uh, you know, there's a great story. 
And, uh, and I love to share this because it talks about how, how our brain can change. But it's a story of uh, Pedro Bacchirita. And he actually was in the 60s, he had a very severe stroke. And in, in, in the stroke, um, his, his son uh, took him to the hospital. And at that time, they worked with him for about a month to see if they could help him in recovery. And if they couldn't recovery, uh, recover, they basically said to their family, we've done everything we can, and they're pretty much going to be this way for the rest of their lives. Well, his son took him home to Mexico, and he was not satisfied with th- that, that, that answer that he got from those helping professionals. So his son said, Dad... As hard as this is, I'm going to put you on the ground and you're going to learn to crawl. And, and literally, day after day, hour after hour, he, he literally um, was up against a wall with his weak hand and learned to use the weak hand and, and the left side. And within a year, through his own diligence, he had landing another, landed another teaching job at San Francisco State University. Now... What's interesting about this is seven years later, he died uh, of a heart attack up in South, down in South America. And the interesting part on this, Jeff, that just blows my mind is when, they, when he died, his son, who was a neuro, neuro, neuroscientist, uh, was called into the hospital because they did a, a brain. They took out his brain and actually looked at it. And what they found is that there was a lesion that had destroyed 97% of his brain that went down to the... Uh, part that you actually, that you, where you walk to the spinal cord. And so 97% lesion. And the incredibleness of that is that he should have never walked. But because of his diligence to change and his effort to, to literally sit up on this wall and literally learn hour after hour. In fact, his neighbors said to his son, you are so mean to your dad making him crawl. I don't think they said that a year later when he was walking and talking. And I sit back and what they've discovered on this, Jeff, is that the brain is so adaptable and you can change it. And that's what they discovered in the research, the neuroplasticity of the brain. The brain can change. And so to the individuals who are stuck in these addictive behaviors, my message is you might have to get down on your hands and knees and learn to crawl again. But not only is change possible, but with the right information, we can help you rewire the brain. Absolutely. And so as you get the right information and you start applying it, understanding it, it expands your awareness and it starts rerouting it. You, you can't think the same about this problem anymore and about yourself. One of the things that uh, individuals who are caught up in this uh, particular addiction struggle with is a sense of shame. And shame is different than guilt. You know, guilt says, I made a mistake, I did something bad, where shame says, I am bad, I am a, I am a mistake. And as, as individuals get education and, and they start applying some of these other things we'll talk about here shortly, um, it reduces their sense of feeling bad about themselves. And they, they start to believe that they might be a good person. And this cannot be understated because this is a key critical component to healthy recovery is seeing yourself correctly. And, and let me emphasize this for the partner who's just discovered it or who has discovered it. The same holds true for them. Uh, you're a person of incredible worth, and your partner's addictive behavior is their addictive behavior. And a lot of women in particular say, what's wrong with me? I mean, how can I compete with this? Uh, I'll never be good enough for him. And if I was good enough, he wouldn't turn to that. All of those negative self-beliefs, not only are they not accurate, you are good enough. And if he chooses to stay in the addiction, you're, addiction, you're still good enough. Correct. It's not even a competition. There's no competing with a real, living, vibrant soul. And the reality is, is that these actors, actresses, and so on that are in these movies and videos and pictures, they need a tremendous amount of healing and work and recovery themselves and so it's, it's, it's no competition, trust me. <laughs> and the other part of that that I think is so critical, when, when you actually have seen people who've attempted to come out of it, so to speak, what you discover there is that they, they are really trying, to, I mean, their life is a shambles. And, and they may have made their money with these sexual things and with these being participating in those, but their lives are a, a shambles. But they feel so much. I mean, you can read some of the, their documents about what their experience is trying to get out of that environment. It's not It's not good news. They have the same worth and value that you do, and they've just been disconnected from it. And so everybody needs to do the same work, and so it's really not a competition. It's not you versus them or anything like that. It's about you discovering your worth and value. 
you know, after the, the, the getting educated part, the next thing I would say is coming out of hiding. And in the last one on marital CPR, we talked about disclosure and how to talk to your spouse about it, emphasizing that if your partner does not know about it already, um, then you've got to open up about it. Now, in this series, we're assuming that your partner already knows. And so the coming out of hiding is not complete, though. There has to be a, a, a long-term process of coming out of hiding, not only from yourself, um, but also to others who can help you. And that process is, uh, is about um, really getting honest about your story and your history. And, and I can't emphasize that enough. The people who I've seen make the most progress, they really are clear on their sexual history. They'll take the time. They'll write about it. They'll evaluate it. They'll understand it. They'll look at their, you know, when it first started. And I, honestly, I really believe there's a tremendous power in looking at your history from that context because then you don't say, I'm some evil person. You know, at age XYZ, I, I first saw it. And what happened to me then? Soon thereafter, I was drawn back to it. What 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old would not be curious? But when does curiosity begin to overcome us? When does it and, – and you start looking at your pattern and say, did you really have a chance when – I mean, if you were to go back and exactly the same things occurred, would you really be able to do it differently? That's right. And your partner may not care at this point how or why you got into it. They may not have a lot of capacity to care or have you know that, that deep compassion and stuff. What I find long-term, though, is that that will happen eventually. But in the meantime, it doesn't matter. You need to do that for yourself. You need to write your history down, make sense of this pattern, look at the unmanageability of it, not to make yourself feel worse about yourself, but I find that it does the opposite. What it does is it creates this view of yourself that is really quite accurate, which is, oh, my gosh, here I am, a young person, like you said, I got overwhelmed by this. It was so stimulating and so exciting and so new and shocking. And it was creating all these crazy new feelings I'd never experienced before, mixed with opportunity, mixed with other kinds of dynamics, and you've got the perfect storm. And as you watch that pattern unfold through this inventory, through this history, your shame starts to go down. You know, and, and I think it's – I'm just going to give an example of what you just said. Do you know, when I, when I asked the question after their first exposure to pornography, how, you know, my curiosity led me back to it. And do you know that 50% said it was just a few days later? So obviously it was so stimulating that they, they, uh, 50% of them said it was just a few days later they went back to it. A month later, it was up to 79% at that point of the people had gone back to it. So So clearly – Early exposure, the curiosity leads back to it. And, you know, that's not good fighting terms. I mean, I, I wouldn't take the odds of saying, you know what, I'm going to give you the, one of the most incredibly stimulating experiences, and you don't have anyone you, you really feel comfortable talking with it about it, and it's this secret. And now all of a sudden you've got this case building against yourself. And then when you start to hear this is bad and this is awful and this is evil, you don't uh, come out and talk about it. Well, now you're building internally this double life that is very hard to, to really let out unless you have the right support system around you. One thing that I think is oftentimes overlooked in addiction recovery is that the person who first gets exposed to this, typically at a young age, is actually traumatized by looking at it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think about what is so traumatizing about it. Well, most children or teenagers have never seen a body do that. Or they've never seen people do that. They don't understand that they're making sense of their own sexuality. And all of a sudden, they're seeing these bizarre, oftentimes very exaggerated types of experiences. And it absolutely makes no sense to them. And, you know, Kevin, I remember when 9-11 hit. I was living in a, in a rural area of the United States. And uh, there, there were no skyscrapers anywhere. But I, and so I was in no danger. But I, I felt the trauma of that in so many ways. And I remember going back and I... I I got on the internet and I had to watch the videos over and over. I had to make sense of it because I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen a real plane fly into a real building. All I had ever seen was special effects. And I knew those were fake. But this was this was so weird to me. And I know that this is what happens to young people when they first experience it. And so going through your history, you start to see that pattern of, wow, I, 
I did go back to it. I was trying to make sense of it. I couldn't leave it alone. And so many guys think that they're bad or dirty or awful or evil because they they kept going back to it. So doing your history, making sense of those patterns allows you to understand exactly um, what you were really trying to do during that time, to cope with it. And, And I like the word cope because as you develop it into a coping mechanism, which may be to avoid parents' conflict or to deal with feeling socially inadequate or feeling social anxiety, oftentimes the turning of that as a coping mechanism is, is almost a normal response to get away from our fears. It's not that it's healthy, but it's, it's something that's common. That's right. Yeah, and so, and so doing that inventory is critical. Now, the, you know, in, in the 12-step traditions, they, uh, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step recovery programs, you know, this is step four, which is writing your inventory. Right. And then step five is to share your inventory with someone else. And I think that that step has to be uh, completed. You absolutely have to share this inventory with another person. Now, a lot of, a lot of people will wonder, well, do I share it with my wife or my partner? Um, maybe not at first. In some relationships, it depends. You might be able to pull that off, and you might talk about it. But my experience has been with people is that when they share it with a counselor who specializes in treating pornography addiction, when they share it with a a church leader, if they share it with a a close confidant, someone that loves them and does not judge them, that accepts them, their worth and value as a human being and will not shame them, that is important for them to write it down, read it out loud, it gives it a sense of ownership. It reduces shame, and that makes such a huge difference. And I, I really want to emphasize this. What we're assuming here is that you're not trying to do this by yourself, right? Because at this point, your partner's found out, and I really believe that individuals who try to do it on them by themselves, well, I'll just write down my story, and I'll, I'll figure this out. It's not complete in my experience. There is a tremendous value, as you say, in reaching out and sharing that story with someone. It, it's like it empowers you because your story is now out there, and it's like I don't have to be afraid of my own story. And I think if you really want a pretty complete history, work with a counselor who, who specializes in this because my experience has been is that guys will come in with their story, and then I start asking questions, and I care about this person. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm safe. I'm going to ask them questions in a respectful way, and we're going to understand the full, you know, complex pattern here. And all of a sudden, their story expands, and it becomes more accurate. So, Kevin, you're absolutely right. This is not something you want to just kind of scribble out and just assume that it's done. This is a process. This is a discovery. And I believe firmly that as you discover, which really, as it is, you describe it, discovery. That it can be very freeing to you. It's because it arises, arouses your internal awarenesses and you say, wow, I understand how I got to where I am. Yeah. Because we aren't, we aren't in a vacuum. We don't just get to where we're at and all of a sudden we just land there. There's a history. There's a building up to it. And the mind, like you said, it's trying to make sense of its experiences. And when you stop long enough to make sense of it, very, very powerful. You know, when I think of the word recovery... I think that word gets used so much that sometimes I forget what it really means. If I'm going to recover something, I'm going to restore it back to a wholeness. I'm going to bring something back to a complete state. And when people are struggling with pornography addiction and guys are, are you know, going through their inventories, they realize how much of themselves they've lost. They realize how much is missing and what they've given up and the losses and the sadness and the, the, those things are become so apparent. And so you, to really have a complete recovery, you have to know what happened. You have to know all the pieces. Very good. So what are some of the other things that you would recommend uh, that the person who's been struggling do to get started down this path? You know, the next thing is, like and we, we talked about this, is to continue connecting to ongoing support. I'm a big fan of group treatment. Um, I, I really don't believe people can heal from this in isolation. I, I just think that it's incomplete. And so trying to just, you know, read a book by yourself and get better or, you know, do, um, you, know, uh, you know, watch a, a video or an online kind of thing, um, a lot of the times it's just not complete. You have to connect with real people. And by that I mean getting in a group with people that struggle with this. This is one of the hardest things for people who struggle with this to do. It is like a death experience for them to, to face a group of people. 
and some great places to start are 12-step groups. Um, I think that uh, you know a lot of uh, churches and religious organizations have their own 12-step groups. There's uh, Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, there's Sex Addicts Anonymous. There's different types of groups that specialize in, in these kinds of things. And those are 12-step groups that don't have uh, you know therapists or any kind of obvious leaders. They're just peer support. And then there's treatment groups. Um, like the Lifestar program that I run, and there's other types of group treatment. Um, getting into a group setting is so important because it allows you uh, to reduce shame, see yourself more honestly, and to feel held and supported in this. Uh, pornography addiction is an intimacy disorder. It's an intimacy problem. And being with real people is a form of building real intimacy. And developing some of those intimacies that may have never been allowed to develop because of previous environments, uh, family situations, uh, or circumstances that prevented that from happening. So I completely agree with that. And, you know, just a couple of points there. Uh, if you're trying to figure out where to find a good group for you, uh, I really uh, think that sash.net has some has some great resources of therapists who specialize in this and also groups. Uh, they'll, they'll send you the links of sex uh, uh, SA groups, SSA groups. And the other part that I think is also valuable here, uh, you know, Jeff was talking about the Lifestar Network. Uh, I'm not a part of Lifestar Network, but I will tell you that if you have a Lifestar Network in your area, I strongly recommend it because the, the, the feedback that I'm getting from people that I've actually talked to have been through it, the outcomes have been phenomenally positive. So uh, if that's an advertisement for Lifestar, let it be, but that's just a fact. <laughs> it's a couples recovery program, yeah. and you can get to uh, the map of the Lifestar areas in your, uh, Lifestar programs in your area at www.lifestarnetwork.org. Yep. All right. So, so that's for the the mail. Are there other things that you would recommend that he do as he go through? Well, I think if he's going to enter that recovery process through a group process, they're going to, you know, they're going to obviously take him into a treatment direction through the education and other things like that. But again, um, you you the other the other critical thing I guess I would add on this is to set good boundaries. You have got to let your brain heal. Uh, from the pornography addiction. Uh, this is not something you can just keep doing to yourself and assume you'll get better. And I look at this as, uh, you know, I've heard Marianne Fifield, a therapist in uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, she says, you have to unscramble your brain. This thing is having such an impact on your brain that you've got to give it time to heal. And I think of it as stopping the bleeding or whatever you want to call it. And that may be, for you, it may be setting strong boundaries with internet access or limits that prevent you from continuing to do the damage that you're doing to yourself. No, and that's one of the things that I talk about in my book, Treating Pornography Addiction, is establishing a game plan. That's right. And because if you don't have a game plan, the, the, no game plan is a guaranteed re, re, relapse. And so there's time and effort that you have to put into that game planning, which is boundary setting. And I really believe that if we establish that initial part, then we, if we do that initial work, then we make the rest of it a process that we just build on from that. There's so much safety in setting boundaries boundaries. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the times you'll go through a withdrawal process and so on, um, where your, your, your body is craving the, the stimulants and, and the dopamine and all those other things. And, and that's understandable, but the boundaries are protective. And, and then I would add one other part to this. And I think we have to have proper expectations mm -hmm. to think that you're going to rush through this uh, a story comes to my mind of a, a young man who had been heavily involved. He was taking quite a risks, uh, quite a few risks, viewing it uh, at, uh, on campus and so forth. And uh, he came to me after being in a relationship for a couple of weeks and said, "Hey, I haven't had a problem. I'm not going to have a problem with this." But he'd been viewing it almost daily for weeks and months at a time. And he, after three sessions, he said, "I think I'm done. I think I'll be okay." And that expectation. For, I, I looked at him and I said, you know, you can choose to do that. But when the craving comes back and, and it, all of the things that you've you know, led up to this point, when they come back, um, just know that I'm here. And I got a phone call about two weeks later and he said, I can't do it by myself. His expectations were so unrealistic. And, and so I, I strongly recommend that you understand that this is going to be a process that you're going to rewire your brain, and you don't rewire habits quickly. That's right. Uh, you know, there's, there's so much evidence that, that, you know, just from clinical observation and, and uh, also from the research that the brain can heal, which is the good news, but it, it's slower than we think. But like you talked about with that story with the, the gentleman with the stroke, um, it, it can repair itself, which is so important. But 
It's not going to happen if you don't have good boundaries. You've got to protect yourself from this. And a lot of guys worry, well, what if I have a slip or relapse? Does, does everything start over? No, it doesn't. It doesn't start over. Does it set you back? Yes, it does. But, you know, I look at it as like, uh, you know, uh, rock climbing. You know, you're, you're setting recovery anchors all along the way. And when you fall, you fall to the last anchor. You're not falling to hit the ground. And so you've got to keep going with this, this getting educated, coming out of hiding, connecting to ongoing support, and setting good boundaries and staying in the process. And that's a great way to start your individual recovery. This is not something that is the responsibility of your partner. This is something that you have to do by yourself and get into this process. And if I can emphasize something there, don't let your spouse do the work for you. You set up your appointments to groups or to therapy. You take charge of that because that message, the moment you ask her to, hey, will you call my therapist or will you, you find out, no. You're taking responsibility for this is going to be more healing for her because she'll see you actively taking measures. And I believe that is a critical message that you need to be sending to your spouse or partner. Well put, Kevin. And that is, that is why we want to emphasize my recovery your recovery, and our recovery. So let's talk about partners now. Uh, two things that I would start with. And one is, we've already emphasized it, there's trauma. That's right. And a significant amount of people, so I won't revisit that other than to say it's normal to feel anxious, irritated, upset, to relive the experience over and over your mind, to have dreams of about 50% of the women that have taken my survey online, 200 of the 400 have reoccurring dreams. So very, very common. Nightmares. Nightmares, yep. Yeah, intrusive memories. Intrusive memories. Unwanted. And so these are just normal things. And so I just really want to emphasize that you almost need to understand that you're going to experience these things and you're not going crazy. So that's the first point that I would like to emphasize. The second part for the partner is that you're not going to know how to interact with your spouse. And so a, a common guideline that I try to give these women is, Right now, you don't know how to interact with them, and so your first response is to tell them that. I don't know what to do right now. I don't know how, I don't know how to do this right now, and I'm going to learn how to interact with you. But right now, I've, and this is the honesty of it, I feel fear, I feel hurt, I feel damaged. Be honest with those emotions, but not in I'm blaming you way. And you can even say this, I'm not trying to blame you. I, what your actions have hurt me. But I really want to emphasize the moment we come across as punishing and pushing and you, you're bad, you're, 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 you know, you're immoral, you're all of these things, we push them to such a point that they're more likely to relapse and then they'll blame us. Not, not that that's appropriate, but when we push them emotionally and we are so punishing, it's really hard for them to say, wow, I'm going to do that again. In contrast to say, I am hurt. I am just wounded, and I don't know how to deal with it yet. I care about us, but I'm scared. That's right. The, the anger, the rage, the indignant, all of that, the, the indignant feeling, that is all normal. And there's nothing wrong with you for feeling that. But just like anything, the way you respond to that trauma can make a big difference for the, the future and the outcome. So I, I always you know, tell the partners that I'm working with, just, you know, in all of your anger and hurt and pain, which is so profound, and I can't even imagine what that would feel like, with all of that, make sure that you don't do things that you would regret later on. And, and in reality, when I talk with women about this, they hate feeling their anger. They f- hate those feelings of, I just, I, 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 they don't like being in that emotional state. This is not who they are. No, it's not who they it's are. It's their worst self. And, 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 and in that situation, it's important for you to understand that. So what I want to say is as we continue down what the things that you're going to need to do, you, we've already talked about the power of writing. Your mind has to make sense of this experience. Your recovery is going to be, I look at this as organizing and healing and grieving. And, and so much of the activities and the exercises I have my women working on are, are really efforts to, to make sense of this and of their own experience to it. And they learn so much about themselves in the process. It's, it's, it's an awakening, not only about this, but also about who they are as a person. And so, so the, the, the goal isn't to necessarily stop a compulsive behavior. The goal is for you to slow down, to heal, and make sense of your own reactions and give yourself permission to grieve and heal from this. And that, that's your recovery. That's about 
again, we call it recovery because it's about becoming whole again. And this takes so much away from you that you have to recover. And and let's talk about some of those things of recovery. Uh, one of the things that's typical for women is they want to, um, uh, maybe the word is kind of push. It, you need to schedule this appointment. You need to do this. And sometimes they will kind of push their partner to do certain things. My suggestion in that is is to say it would help me if you would do these things. And I'm not going to bring this up again because you know how I feel about it. So it's not that I don't encourage them to say it. I encourage them to say it in a way that says, here's how I feel about this process of change. I think if we're working together and I see you doing these things, I'm going to be able to feel more trust with you. Yeah, I think the message needs to be over and over again that these things will actually draw me closer to you because that's the message. The message isn't, I'm going to control your recovery or I'm going to decide um, what's correct and what's incorrect or whatever. It's just saying, my goal is is to ultimately heal from this. And then in the R recovery part is that I'd like us to be able to save this relationship. Some partners in the beginning of this process don't know if they want to save the relationship. That's okay. And that's very fair. You don't need to decide that right away. Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis right now is this thing would not make it worse or this thing would really help in this way. And, And that's okay. You can ask for those things. And it's not about deciding or making promises about the future at this point. And I think if we are going to emphasize something here, it's your ability to slow down the mind and to not make quick judgment is a very powerful one because the the quick judgment responses are sometimes difficult to back out of. I had a situation where one person said, well, I'm going to get a divorce, and it put her spouse in such a, a, a spiral that he, he didn't know how to respond, and he actually then thought, well, if we're going through a divorce, and he threw caution to the wind, he may took more risks. And, and, and in that situation, that was not her intent. But so I, I be cautious in quick judgment. Yeah. Slow down and observe what's going on. And you still may need to walk down that path towards divorce if, if, there's, if they're not willing to make those steps. However, in a majority of the cases that I'm aware of, the men or the women who are caught in this deeply want out of it. And if they're willing to get the information that we've talked about and do the part that we talked that men can do, then you're observing him. But at the same time, you've got to make sure that you're not neglecting self. Yeah, that's right. We talked about self-care in the marital CPR. And again, I'll just briefly mention that. Um, you know, I think in a previous series you did with uh, Shondell Knowlton and uh, Jill Manning, they made the comment that this would be an excellent time to buy paper plates from Costco. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and simplify your simplify life. Simplify your life, say no to things, reduce commitments, um, and really make this about um, caring and nurturing the soul and the body. And, and that's so counter to our natural instincts when we're in trauma mm-hmm. is, is we typically don't do a lot of self-healing. We're more of trying to make sense of it. And, but self-healing is getting a good night's rest, eating healthy foods. And, and I'll tell you, one of the more powerful ones that I've seen that works with women in this situation is they find a secure place that they can open up and talk about it in a way that they don't have to be inhibited. You know, in the same way that a that a, an individual struggling with addiction needs to be able to write down his story and make sense of his sexual history, I find that partners have got to be able to tell their story. And their story may include stuff that happened before they discovered this, but it certainly includes everything that's happened since. And again, this is part of organizing the trauma and talking about it in a safe place. And, and as strange as this may sound, find some pleasurable activities. It's amazing to me how many women I ask in this situation, what do you enjoy? Nothing. They can't, they can't come up with it. And boy, it's hard to nurture yourself when you don't know what you like. Yeah. And, and so I strongly recommend that. You know, one of the ironic things that I've seen, uh, you know, you talked about Martin Seligman earlier. You know, one of the core things that he has found that has helped people be authentically happy is service. That's right. And that is so counterintuitive when we're feeling the fight or flight response that it's hard to even consider that as an option. But there is some power in being able to give to other people. Now, I'm, I can say some people become so focused on that that they stop dealing with their own issues. So I would caution against that part of it. But still, there is some value in finding a way to serve and connect people. I know one of the powerful things that one person did is they started spending more time with a parent who was ailing. Mm-hmm. And just as an example, and that that kind of helped resurrect some of those feelings of I feel better here. So right. find those places you feel better. Exactly, and these aren't, you know, these aren't uh, massive service opportunities. These are 
uh, small and significant types of events. I, I love the work of Stephen Stosny. He's done some fabulous work with uh, partners who, um, specifically in his case, have uh, he works with domestic violence. And what he's found is that partners who are under extreme trauma and stress can do a lot by improving something in their life around them, right? Wiping off a counter, spending time with a child, improving, appreciating, right? Looking around you, having some gratitude, looking for things that are going well, improving, appreciating, connecting, and protecting something. He, he's found in his work and his research that, that those kinds of things help ground people and put them in a state of mind where they're able to move forward. And like we talked about in our last series, um, get out of that passive fear. You know, and let me emphasize a point there. Uh, healthy distractions are very positive. A distraction is some of those things that you just described. Now, let me add to that for just one component of this. If you're distracting yourself and the thoughts refuse to go away, that's a pretty good sign you need to talk about it or write about it. Well put. Yeah, I agree with that. It's because it's you know you're just you're just stuck on the hamster wheel in your head, and you've got to be able to give it a place to go. It's 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 needing to get um, uh, released. So that's a sign that says I need to reach out more. I need I need to talk with somebody or write about this what I'm what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. So, so for so for partners, the the main task for a partner is going to be um, recognizing the trauma, validating that, understanding and learning about what the, her own response is from not only f- learning and hearing what her body's telling her to do and her emotions and her spirit and so on, connecting to outside support, telling her story, journaling, self-care, lots of self-care, and then looking for ways to connect, appreciate, connect, uh, and protect, and, uh, and those ki- improve, and those kinds of things are going to make a huge difference. And that's how she's going to start her recovery journey. Again, like for the person struggling with the addiction, groups. There are, there are lots of support groups for partners as well, connecting with other women and others who have struggled with this. Again, like we talked about, there are therapy groups like the Lifestar program. There are 12-step groups for partners um, that help support them and help them learn how to have healthy connection and have healthy balance of these things. So getting in a group setting is also very important. And if we're going to talk about that group support, recognize that you're going to be there with people who get you. They understand it. I mean, it may initially your fear of going to something like that is like you're going to be alone. But these people, if anybody's going to understand your emotions, they will. And you don't have to explain or justify or you know anything about how you why you feel what you feel because they get it. Yeah. So so those are some things that the partner can do. Now let's just turn our attention to the marriage. What what are we what are we going to be dealing with in this this marriage part at this phase of the relationship? Well, at this phase, I think the most important thing is to do is to not do anything dramatic. Um, this is about recognizing that the marriage at this point. I, I often describe that it's sort of been suspended. You know, I, I look at you know when you go to the auto mechanic and they stick it up on the lift, the car's not going anywhere. It's it's about being able to get under it, walk around it, look at it, and so the marriage at this point is has been suspended, and and so this is an important time for the couple to lock into their own individual recovery processes, but also just to start gently looking at what the marriage is, what it was, and this is an important time for the couple to see: is my partner facing me? And, and the way that a guy in recovery, a, man, a guy who's struggling with recovery, the way he faces his wife is by being open with her, talking with her, sharing with her, coming toward her, spending time with her, cutting out other commitments. You're talking about attaching Correct. to her. And, and as, as a clinician, uh, we both, clinicians, we both could say one of the things that people struggling with addictive behaviors do is they struggle with uh, attaching to people, th- creating intimacy. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it's because that part of their life hasn't really been developed. But the exciting thing is you can develop that, which we're going to be talking about in another series or se- session of this series. So we really want to emphasize the point of learning how to be intimate. And there's lots of ways to start attaching and reattaching because, again, ending the addiction is making space for the marriage because the, the addiction is a counterfeit attachment. It's a competing attachment. And so you've been in some ways, well, in a lot of ways, been bonding or attaching to this very predictable type of addiction experience. As you set boundaries around that, 
that opens up space for you to start bonding with your partner. So that's a significant couple event as you turn toward the marriage and face the marriage. I have a lot of guys who, when they get, um, when they come out of hiding and, and they disclose and, and whatever, they end up uh, finding ways to turn toward their partner that they've never done before. A lot of them will uh, start to text their wife or they'll start to have lunches with her. They'll start to come home a little earlier. They start to make space for this. And sometimes their wives want to talk to them and spend time with them. Sometimes they don't. But at least they're facing the marriage. And I look at this as he's facing the marriage. She may need a little more space from it, but his direction hasn't changed. And and so as a couple, I'll go back to that concept of the first thing that we're going to really do here is we're not going to make any quick judgments. And then as we go through this process, we're going to learn how to really be married in, in a way that's working and effective. Because really what we've probably come to realize as, as couples go through this, they've been struggling in various different ways for months or years, and they haven't had the language to talk about it. She's felt it, he's felt it, and it's been a it's been an elephant in the living room that they've just walked around in, right. ma- in many instances. Now we're talking about it, and we're going to be talking about it uh, much like that story. You know, if you grab any part of an element, elephant blindfolded, you're going to have different experiences. You're not going to be describing the same thing because it's not the same thing. That's right. Her experience, his experience is not the same thing. But you, what we do have in common is that you're married, and and that marital bond that that still is oftentimes deeply embedded within us. We want that connection. We've been afraid to get it. That's what we need to learn how to pursue because really that's how we're going to strengthen the marriage is we're going to take out this other, this take the elephant out of the living room. And uh, I don't know what you want to put in there, but uh, we're going to take it out. <laughs> One thing that I see a lot of the times is that the marriage is a lot like being in a, having a perimeter uh, when, when you make marriage commitments, what you're making is is you're setting boundaries. You're saying, these are lines I will not cross. And so I, I look at it as, as if two, you've got two people that are built inside of a perimeter, you know, let's say a rectangle. And in this box, the couple has space to be as close or as distant as they need to be. And so mm-hmm. the couple may feel like in order for us to be healthy or have the marriage, we have to be together all the time and connected and close and so tight. But what I find is that there is space in this at this point for you to back into your corners a little bit if you need to and still face each other and or turn around or whatever, but you're still in the perimeter. So that's what I mean. Don't make any big decisions. Stay inside the marital boundary and don't do anything that's going to make it worse in that sense. And then you learn how to start moving toward each other and reaching and getting closer. And if I could emphasize another point with that, when you disconnect, when there are arguments, when... It, the fighting seems overwhelming. If you both know that you're committed, then it's a matter of what we're doing right now isn't working. Give yourselves permission to go to your corners to take a time out. Because in that moment, you're saying, I'm, I'm still committed. So, But don't go to the corners saying, I'm not committed. Say, you know what, I, I, even though we are, I'm, I'm angry right now, I'm upset at you right now, I'm still here and I'm not, I'm not walking out the door. That, that concept of sharing commitment level in that time of crisis is a very powerful intervention. You're still inside the perimeter of the marriage and that is so safe and so bonding because it says, I'm still here for you, I'm accessible, I'm responsive, I, I, just, I, just, have, I just am a little more distant right now. And that's, that's an important part in this recovery process because there will be days where you want to be close and you want to have sexual intimacy or make love. There are some days that you don't want to talk, and that's all okay. If you're open and you're sharing and talking about it. That's right. But if you're not, if, you're, if it's closed and you're disconnected, then you both are kind of in this, it's this ship that's like, are we tipping over? Are we not tipping over? Are we, are we okay? Are we stable? Are we not stable? And that kind of a thing makes you seasick. And if you're not sure about the future of your marriage, which is very common early in this process, it, it just throws the whole thing on its head. So you're not sure what's real even and what this person's going to do long term and where it's all at. And that's perfectly normal. And so... Because of that, that's why it's even more important not to make any rush decisions about it. So at this point, you have the space and you have the time to figure out. There's no urgency to this unless, of course, there is physical danger or harm, which is a whole other discussion for another day. But, but, but if we're talking about discovering an addiction and dealing with that, then, then recognize that you have the time and the space to define this thing. And that's part of holding the couple in the process. And as, as that, that holding pattern, one of the gifts that you give to each other is saying, look, right now, 
we could make decisions, but they would probably be based on our intense fight or flight emotions. Let's step back. We'll, we'll gather the data. We'll both assess where we're at, and then we're going to talk about it. And make, please be clear on this. You will not be able to say what Kevin just said and be able to do any of that if you're not doing the individual recovery process. You won't have the capacity to do it. You'll, you'll stay in this reactive set of behaviors, and you'll end up doing things that you regret. And so there's a, there's a, there's a huge emphasis on structuring that part first so that when you come to the couple relationship and look at it and try and make sense of it, you're doing it from a place where you're going to make better decisions about the best long-term interest of the relationship and the family. You know, as we conclude this part, one of the things I really want to emphasize here to our listeners, as a couple, you both are longing for intimacy. And at this point, it's been distracted. There have been distractions. There have been addictive behaviors that have really prevented you from achieving your full potential. And our goal in creating this series is to really strengthen your marriage because we really believe that's what you, in your heart of hearts, that you want. And so our, our goal is, is to really help you establish the boundaries so you can stabilize through this process. And then in the next series, part of this series, we're going to be talking about how to replace the addictive behaviors, the trauma that you're experiencing with true attachment and, and intimacy. That's right. And so long term, you will know um, how to be set up for success in this relationship and not just walk through this recovery process by yourself. We want to thank you for joining us. Anything in conclusion that you'd like to add, Jeff? I think we've covered a lot of great ground in this series, and I look forward to the, to the next series on uh, building healthy attachment and, and intimacy and uh, sustaining long-term recovery as a couple. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us. And uh, as you go through this process, take the time, take some notes, and really as you go through this learning process, we invite you to be self-aware and continue in your growth. Thank you again for joining us.